About a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Had my prostate taken out, and I'm fine. Many of you know that. What you don't know is over the last couple of months, I've gone through another cancer scare. This time, uh, relative to uh, esophageal cancer. For months now, I've had trouble swallowing food. I have to drink tons of water to get it down. So beginning in February and through March, I had several scopes, a number of biopsies by a couple of different surgeons, and the net is I'm just fine. It was a scare. But in both the diagnosis uh, a year and a half ago of cancer and in this recent scare, I really surprised myself because uh, I was unflappable. I was unfazed by cancer. I had a, a deep sense in the sovereignty of God, whatever God's plan for my life was. And I had a deep sense of, of the goodness of God, that God is in the process of working all things together for good, regardless of the outcome. I had a palpable sense of the presence of God over these last, oh, I should say over this last year and a half. However, two weeks ago, we were with most of our large family, our adult kids and their spouses and our, our grandkids, and we were out west. And something relatively minor happened, and I completely and totally lost my cool. A year and a half of being unfazed by cancer, this little thing, man, I lost my cool. And my emotions trumped my faith. And instead of clinging to the sovereignty and the goodness of God in that particular moment, man, they just went right out the window. And I escalated the problem, and I frankly made a scene before most of my family. I'm a mixed bag of belief and unbelief. My heart is a combination of miracle and mud. And when the miracle is resident in my heart, I have a sweet sense of the sovereignty and the goodness of God, and it's right there. But when the mud begins to rise, uh, my faith seems to evaporate, and I'm beholden to my emotions or to my circumstances. And you are the exact same way if you know Jesus Christ. This is profoundly biblical because the Bible tells us to be a Christian means we have two identities. On the one hand, we are, if we know Christ, we are beloved, adopted children of God. But on the other hand, we are self-absorbed sinners. So to be a Christian is to be more loved than you ever could possibly imagine on the one hand, and yet at the same time, on the, uh, the other hand, it's to be more self-centered, more vulnerable to temptation, more easily confused and more uh, needy than you ever dared to think. 
And the good news of the gospel is it's God's grace clung to uh, by faith that makes the difference. First John tells us it's faith that overcomes the world. Today I want to say to you as well that it's faith that overcomes the downward pull of your sinful heart. And that's why we're in this series on living by faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Because we're looking at some of the great stories of different people, different heroes of the faith, and how faith in their ordinary lives made them live extraordinary lives. And today we come to two more stories. The stories of two women, two remarkable women, Sarah and Rahab. And I want to look at their stories and then draw some applications in terms of what they can teach us about how you and I can live by faith today. So we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse 11. We're going to look first at the story of Sarah, then the story of Rahab. And I just want to say to you parents, when it comes to the story of Rahab, I'm not going to say anything that will be a problem for any of the children among us this morning. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age. Now this is understatement. The Bible uh, uh, gives us a lot of understatement. Sarah was way past, way past. Uh, Sarah was 90 years old, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now what I want you to notice here is that living by faith or faith, I should say, is living by the promises of God, not by personal pain. Do you see that here? What does it mean to live by faith? It means I live by the promises of God, just as Sarah did, not by my pain. Now let me unpack a little of Sarah's story. Sarah was married to Abraham. That's a big deal because God in Genesis chapter 12 gave Abraham some extraordinary, some remarkable uh, uh, promises uh, so significant we call them the Abrahamic covenant. And in these promises, God promised to make Abraham the father of the nation of Israel, to make Israel a great nation, and to make Israel great among the nations and to be a blessing to all the nations. Later, as God continued to unpack the Genesis 12 Abrahamic covenant and give more detail, it, would be, it became clear that Abraham and Sarah would be the descendant or the ancestors of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that Jesus would come from their loins, the loins of Abraham, the loins uh, of Sarah. So this promise, this Abrahamic covenant, was enormous. It was actually not just impacting Israel, it was world-changing. But there was a huge problem, a huge problem with the delivery system. And that is that Sarah was infertile. She could not get pregnant. 
And that infertility uh, began at the very beginning of their marriage, and it continued year after year, decade after decade, until Sarah, as I just said, was 90 years old. And that's why Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11 says she was way past. She was light years past, humanly speaking, from childbearing age. Now, many of you know this feeling. You know what it's like for a, a couple who wants to have kids to not be able to have kids and how terrible that is, how, how depressing and discouraging and, and isolating that is. In Sarah's ancient traditional world, the inability to conceive was like a death sentence for a woman. It was the worst possible thing that could happen uh, to a woman. And as a result, as a woman who was barren, you experienced scorn from other people. You had other people look down on you, uh, wondering, if not out loud, you know, what did she do to displease God? And why has God closed her womb? Sarah experienced that decade after decade. Actually, what I want you to understand is Sarah lived a nightmare in her culture. It was both a personal problem and it was a spiritual problem because Sarah knew what God had promised. God, where in the world are you? And it went on for decades. Now, let, let me show you how difficult this was for Sarah. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to look just at a couple of verses that expose Sarah's difficulty. And to give you a little context, there are three supernatural beings I said supernatural. We believe two were angels. We believe one was Jesus Christ, who now have appeared to Abraham and Sarah. And so we read, beginning in verse uh, 9 of Genesis 18, these beings ask this question, where's your wife Sarah, they ask Abraham. Well, there in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now we're beginning to see that these aren't ordinary humans. They're speaking with certainty about the future. And now the interesting part. Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, Abraham. Uh, Abraham and her, uh, behind these people. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Not mostly old. I'm mostly old. They were very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Now notice the third word. Then the Lord, this is Jesus Christ, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? 
And Jesus asks this question rhetorically. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I wonder if you believe that or you disbelieve that. Do you today in what you're facing believe nothing is too hard for the Lord? Or do you believe, hey, you know, this is a pretty hard thing. I'm not sure God is in this. Jesus himself says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said to Jesus, I did not laugh. But Jesus said, yes, you did laugh. Now, Sarah, in her story in Genesis, has some dark moments. But this is Sarah at her worst. Her laugh is, an innocent, is not an innocent laugh. It's a laugh of doubt. It's disbelief that nothing is too hard for God. So Sarah lies to cover it up. Time goes by. We come to Genesis chapter 21, three chapters later. And Sarah conceives, as I said, at the age of 90, gives birth to a son. Abraham and Sarah name him Isaac because the name Isaac means God laughs. And so uh, the author is telling us something significant. Sarah's laughter of doubt has now given way to laughter of delight, laughter of faith. And along the way, uh, someplace along the way, Sarah has been converted, been transformed. Because God has now fulfilled his promise when it was humanly impossible. Because as Jesus says here, nothing, nothing is too hard for God. I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that today. I want that joy, that confidence to fill your soul. Now this brings us back to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. Because we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 11 that by faith, even Sarah who had this personal agony, this impossible um, uh, problem, trusted God. Specifically, we're told, she believed, faith for Sarah was believing in the faithfulness of God to fulfill his word. She took God at his word. And along the way, Sarah's unbelief becomes belief. And instead of being captive to her infertility, captive to her problem, captive to her, her problems, captive to what's horizontal, Sarah made this move by faith as a result of grace uh, to live vertically, to live in light of the faithfulness, the promises, and the power of God. And she saw those more clearly than she saw her circumstances. And that is what the Bible calls faith. Amazing faith. And Sarah is transformed by grace through faith. Sarah is a picture of someone who overcomes uh, tremendous personal problems by clinging to the word of God, by clinging to the, the promises of God. Don't miss this. 
go to school on Sarah's faith. Now let's go to Rahab. And let's uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 11. And let, or rather, we're in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at verse 31. And we're introduced to Rahab. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now let me give you just a, a, a little context here. Rahab comes along 500 years after Sarah. Five centuries. And unlike Sarah, Rahab was a Gentile. She was an outsider to Israel. And where Sarah was honorable, Rahab wasn't. Sarah may have gone to Wheaton College. Rahab would never have considered it. And where Sarah was at the center of God's redemptive purposes, his redemptive plan revealed in the Abrahamic covenant, Rachel and her people, because of their idolatry, their immorality, their polytheism, possibly their child sacrifices to the variety of different gods, all Rahab and her people were all enemies of God. And Rahab lived in the very pagan city of Jericho. But boy, did God love this sinful, lost woman. It's an amazing story. But Rahab and her people had a problem. Because the Israeli army, as they could see, was massing around the city of Jericho uh, to conquer and destroy Jericho as Israel begins the conquest of the promised land to once and for all rid the promised land of the reign of terror and the idolatry and the immorality and the child sacrifices and everything went that went with the polytheism and the paganism of, of that day. And God had commanded Israel to go into the promised land. So Joshua, the leader of Israel, the leader of the armies of Israel, sends two spies into Jericho to check it out. Now we don't know for sure, but there's speculation that Rahab probably ran a small inn. And the spies we do know stayed with Rahab. The king of Jericho, think of him in terms of a mayor, finds out he confronts Rahab. But Rahab lies to the leader of her very own people. And she hides the spies. And we have an amazing declaration of faith that Rahab makes after these things happen to the spies she is hiding. So we're going to go look at Joshua chapter 2. And we're going to read basically Rahab's statement, a statement of faith that is found in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof where she was hiding them and said to them, I know. Now notice that. I know. I know. I have confidence. I know beyond a shadow of doubt that the Lord has given you this land. 
and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you, the Jews, the Israelites. We Why? Because we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, when you, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now, before I read this next statement, understand who Rahab is, the city she lives in, what life was like for her, and listen to these words. For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's just stunning. Now imagine you're living in the United States and you know that within the next 30 days, Russia is going to destroy the United States and you can't leave and there's nothing you can do about it. And that was Rahab's situation. Yet instead of being embittered toward life, embittered toward God, instead of being captive to her culture, to her king, to her people, the approval of her people, instead of standing with them, uh, Rahab denounces the polytheism of her people and announces her faith in the one true God, Israel's God. And she backs it up by risking her life to hide the spies. And her her faith is so exemplary that she ends up being mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31. And to boot, she's also mentioned as righteous in James chapter 2 and verse 25. And then when we come to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, we discover by inference uh, that Rahab identified with Israel, became a part of Israel, married an Israeli. Some speculate she married Joshua. And Rahab became an ancestor of Jesus Christ. This promise of the seed that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 is expanded in Genesis chapter 12. This promise of the seed, the seed ultimately being Jesus Christ, is transmitted transmitted through Sarah and Rahab. And both of them had very difficult lives. So that's their stories. Now, what do they teach us about faith? I want to draw three applications. First of all, the thing I see that Rahab and and Sarah teach us is that faith is confidence in God's future for me. (coughs) Faith, biblical faith, always has a future orientation. And it's what enables us to transcend the present. So a person of faith uh, says, you know, I don't really know what's happening right now. 
I don't understand and I, I'm confused. I, I don't see what God is doing. As a matter of fact, uh, this is really bad or, or as a matter of fact, this is uh, just awful. This is uh, brutal. I don't know if I'm going to make it. But that person of faith goes on to say, but yet I know God is sovereign and God is good and I'm going to rest in him. For Sarah... It was confidence that God's promise would be fulfilled in spite of her infertility, in spite of her circumstances. You see, faith frees you from the tyranny of your circumstances. From the way our circumstances tend to choke us. For Sarah, it was confidence in the promises of God. For Rahab... It was confidence that God was going to punish idolatry, that God was going to bring judgment. And the only way out for her was to repent of her immorality, to turn from her immorality, and to brace Israel's God as the true God, which is exactly what Rahab did. So what does this mean? It means that Sarah's future faith focused on the faithfulness of God, Sarah, and Rahab's future faith uh, focused on the justice, the, the judgment of God. And because of their future faith, they cast themselves on the mercy and the love of God in the present. Now hear me. Bitter people are stuck in the past. Angry people are stuck in the present. But people who live lives of joy... And, and, and confidence, not in themselves, but in God, are, are people who look into the future and know that God is good and God is in control, regardless of how dark it gets. Now, before I go on, let me just say something about heaven here. Because I, I, I wonder why heaven has become obsolete for so many of us. What's changed? I have a, a statement on my desk here in the office that I go back to all the time. It's a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward habit, to which we should subordinate all other concerns in life. Why should you labor for or set your hearts on anything else but that, is, but that which is your proper end and your true happiness? Now, Edwards isn't saying don't enjoy life, only focus on heaven. Edwards is saying that ultimate happiness is found only in heaven. And spend your life only as a journey toward heaven. So I wonder how you are spending your life. Are you locked on the past? Are you stuck in the present? Are you aware of God's wonderful promises for the future, including heaven? Faith is confidence in God's future for me. Let's go on, number two. Second thing these delightful women teach us is faith is refusing to be defined by what I see. So what is it that defines you? Is it your wounds, your losses, your infertility, your circumstances, your, your background, which you can see, or the wounds of Jesus Christ, which you can't see? 
What is it that defines you? Your accomplishments, your performance, your successes, which you can see, or the accomplishment of Jesus Christ and dying in your place for your sins on the cross, which you can't see. Sarah agonized over her identity. Year after year, she defined herself by what she wasn't, a mother. Then when the grace of God broke through and Sarah covered herself in, in, in the promises of God, her identity shifted from who she was in her neighborhood to who she was in Jesus Christ or God. You see, for years, Sarah had been miserable because she had been leaning her ladder of identity against the wall of what she could see. Instead of leaning her ladder of identity against the wall of what she couldn't see and the promises of God. Which wall is your ladder leaning against? Don't make the mistake of Sarah. Adversity is inevitable, but misery is a choice. And finally, the third and the last thing I want to mention that we, I learned that we learn is that faith is this deep abiding conviction that no matter what, God loves me. That his grace is enough for me. You see, faith is the conviction at the center of the universe. There is a center, and at the center of the center of the universe is a loving God who continually, unceasingly pours out his grace on humanity and common grace and saving grace. So in spite of Sarah's unbelief, in spite of uh, Rahab's immorality, God remained determined to bless these two women with life-changing, sin-forgiving, saving grace. And somehow they knew, they certainly experienced, that God's purposes of grace are never captive to human sin or weakness. Uh, somehow uh, they knew that God's grace is, is God not making much of them, but God freeing us to make much of him. Did you hear me? Because happiness isn't feeling good about yourself ultimately. Happiness is feeling great about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And God gives us grace, not so we make much of ourselves, but so we make much, we see, we rest, and we bask in what God has done for us in grace. And nowhere is this more vividly seen than in the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross bearing the penalty of your sin? Do you see Jesus on the cross being treated the way you deserve so that the moment you believe you might be treated the way Jesus deserves? Do you see Jesus with arms outstretched in agony, physical agony, becoming poor so you could become rich, becoming empty so you could become full? And when you see that, it begins to change everything in terms of how we react and how we believe in the moments of our life. 
But I just want to say this, and I'm done. You do not conjure up faith by looking within. I am not giving you 10 steps to faith. I am not suggesting you go home, think about this, and dig deep and conjure up faith by looking within. According to the Bible, God gives you faith by grace to the extent you look away from yourself and you look to Jesus. You see, faith, the, the faith of Sarah, the, the faith of Rahab, isn't something we attain by trying harder. Faith is resting in what Jesus has already attained for you at the table on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Father, open our eyes that we might see that the Christian life isn't a function of what we don't do, nor is it a function of what we do do. It's not avoidance, it's not moralism. But it's living in light of the reality of what Jesus Christ has already done. So open our eyes to see him. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.